On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, we trust that, uh, that when we open up the scriptures and we do our best to catch a glimpse of your son, that your spirit grants that. Your spirit helps us to see Jesus more clearly and to know him more deeply. So Father, we're asking that you would give us faith to believe that right now, that we would trust in your spirit that raised him from the dead, that lives in us, that is certainly present, that we would trust that you are going to mold and shape us as we give ourselves to this time. Father, uh, please meet us here. For we ask in the most matchless and the most precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen and amen. So last week, uh, I kind of laid out the outline for every single one of these sections that we're going to be digging into over the next several weeks, maybe even months, in all of these interactions. And uh, the outline's going to be the same week in and week out. And uh, last week, we actually didn't get to part two. And that's fine, because we're actually going to bring in some of what I wanted to say last week and didn't include um, into this week as well. But the outline is really simply this. It's how Jesus is compelling and I'm emphasizing Jesus here because I want to consider how it is that he is unique, special, amazing, beautiful, good in all of these stories, but then how Jesus is compelling, or after it is that we see his uniqueness and how special and amazing and beautiful and glorious that he is, how it is that he's allowing us or pushing us out to go and reveal his glory and his beauty and his goodness to the rest of the world. And so how is it that Jesus in this story is compelling? Like what's special, what's unique, what's amazing about Jesus in this story? Well, before we get into the details of him specifically, we need to understand the miracle, which means the context itself. And the context is absolutely key in this particular miracle. I would say even more so than many of the other miracles that are written down. And there's reason for this. If you look back, I can show you. At the end of the miracle, John lets us in on why the miracle happened and why it's recorded where it is is recorded. And here's what he says. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So John tells you the whole miracle and then he tells you why. What was this whole thing really all about? And so, to, so then you gotta you take that, take that sort of thesis statement about what this whole thing is about and track back through and then you understand what the miracle is really all about. But what is this thesis statement really all about? What's this really, what's he trying to get at? What's he trying to nail home? Well notice the first thing that he said, he, he uses this word first. 
This was the first miracle that Jesus did. Now, most of us might think immediately that first has to do with chronology. And it does. It certainly does. Like when something is first, that means it's before the other things. Absolutely can mean that. But right here, that's not the word that John actually uses. There is a word for that. That's not what John uses. John uses a word here that actually has to do with importance, has to do with significance. Uh, in other words, it's this, word, it's this word in the Greek called arche, and it's where we get our word arch, right? So the arch over everything is the word that he's using, which has much more to do with significance, importance, uniqueness, substance, stuff like that, right? John actually used this word once before already up to this point in his gospel, and it's only in chapter, it, we're only in chapter two, but he's already used it, and he used it actually right in the beginning of his prologue. If you recall the beginning of the Gospel of John, it starts this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, right? You might be familiar with that statement. We say it a ton around here. In the beginning. That word beginning is the same word. It's the word arche, which isn't so much about time. It's not just that in the beginning or when time, like don't think in, in terms of linear time, but above all things. Above all things, there was this word. So in the beginning, or above all things, and now he's using it again. And the idea for the reader, or for the listener, is to listen for these, these little nuggets that he's dropping as he's, as he's writing down this gospel. But also, if you were listening to somebody read it, which is most likely what would be happening, you'd be noticing these threads, these little nuggets, all the way throughout his gospel. So he starts with this one. This was the first. In the beginning was the word. This is the first miracle. You're supposed to go, this is extremely important just from that first word. But then also, what is it really all about? Well, he says this arche of a miracle is not just a miracle. Notice he doesn't use the word miracle. There's a word for miracle. He doesn't use the word miracle. He uses the word sign. So this is the first, the arche, the greatest sign that Jesus did. And a sign by nature is not supposed to be the thing that you stare at. It's supposed to be the thing that points to something else. Right? Which means that what John is getting at here is that this miracle is more than just Jesus displaying his divine power and with this weird magic trick where he turns water into wine. There's something far greater to this. And, and so the details of this miracle are actually more important than I would say many even, even other miracles. So like there's plenty of others where John will say, like for instance, Jesus walking on water, Jesus calming a storm, Jesus feeding 5,000. But a bunch of these, he never says that these are signs. He might not even say that they're miracles, he just tells the story. Which means you're supposed to just read it as a narrative, right? It's right there, he's just telling you what it, what it is that happened. But here, what he wants you to do is he wants you to think more deeply about what happened. He wants you to understand that there's symbolism in everything that's taking place here. And so you're supposed to go back and read through and go, what are all of these details pointing to, right? So this is the arche of miracles, and it's sign language. It's pointing to something else. But notice also, he says, this was the first sign that Jesus manifested his glory with. Manifesting glory. What he's saying here is, this is the first sign where Jesus brings the presence of God into the world, because that's what glory is really all about. God is bringing himself into the world, and he's doing it through turning water into wine. This word glory has also actually already been used once in John's prologue as well. So he speaks of in the beginning, the arche is the word, but notice also, if you go back, you might be familiar with this. This word that was in the beginning, he says in verse 14, became flesh, dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
So again, he's dropping these nuggets. If you're listening to this thing being read, you're going, glory, glory, okay. So first, arche, you've got the word, Jesus is this. Now this first miracle, now you've got this understanding of glory. God's bringing his presence and his beauty into the world. Now it's happening in this miracle as well, right? So he's dropping these nuggets. But notice also what he says, this is when the disciples first believed. When the disciples first believed was after this first amazing miracle of Jesus. John will speak of his desire uh, for people to believe and that being the reason for which he's written these things down. If you look actually in chapter 20 of John's gospel, this is after Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in the book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So again, go back to the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. He was dwelling among us. His glory was made known. Now there's this miracle that's tying to the word entering in. It's his glory here in this miracle being present for the sake of the disciples believing. And now here he ends his gospel, in other words, bookending his gospel with why it is that he's writing these things down. So this miracle, in other words, has a tremendous significance to reveal who God is and what God is like. That's what he's trying to say. Think of it this way, right? If you want to know who God is and what God is like, whatever, whatever ideas come into your mind right now, put those on the shelf and think with me this. God is like Jesus of Nazareth who goes to a wedding that runs out of wine and does this miracle to keep the party going. Like that's who God is and what God is like is what he's saying here, right? So if you have an understanding of a cosmic killjoy, throw it away. That is, that is the exact opposite of what is taking place here. If you, this is a revelation of who God is and what he is like, making himself known in the world. And so he does this particular miracle. Now, what is really unique about Jesus in light of this particular miracle? And I think to understand this, we need to look at the timing of it, right? And so let's go back, now that we've got a foundation for the miracle, let's go back and look at this. Here's how it starts. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The third day. This is going to be another nugget that John is going to weave through the rest of his gospel, this idea of the third day. Jesus will speak of how, uh, when he's in the temple, he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Right? Or you go to Jesus' death, and then three days later, Jesus rises, right? So John here is trying to grab your mind. He's throwing something out to you so that as you read through the rest of his gospel, you'll start, oh, the third day, the third day, the third day. There's significance to even just the idea that Jesus went on the third day. But when is this, like really in the life of Jesus? Well, think about this, right? Jesus, when he starts his ministry, goes out to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is there, gets him, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He gets in the water. He's baptized. Baptism is the symbol, it's, it's the symbol of death and resurrection, right? It's the, the washing of one clean and being made new. For us, we are baptized into Christ, and what we're saying in, in getting into the water and coming out is that we are, we're new, right? Something, something fresh is starting from this point. It's like a new life, right? Jesus goes and gets baptized, and then three days later does this miracle, so the idea, of course, that John is trying to relay to you is that Jesus is starting something very significant here. He's laying a foundation for you to think about God in a particular way. And so he starts with this timing. But notice there's another time indicator as you carry on. Here's what it says in verses three through four. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, 
what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So there's a time indicator there with the hour has not yet come. We'll get to that in just a second. But notice the way that Jesus speaks about this initially. Before he even gets to my hour has not yet come, notice the way he addresses his mother. He says, woman. How many of you have ever talked to your mom like that? You should, don't even raise your hand. Shame on you, right? <laughs> because you should not talk to your parents this way. And, but it sounds terrible, right? It sounds terrible. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't nearly as bad as what we might assume it to sound in our current day in, in, in American culture, right? In Jesus' day, this was an okay term, it cer- but it certainly was not an endearing term, but it was setting a ground, like it was, it was, he was trying to help you to see a difference in relationship. He's helping her to see and his disciples to see a difference in relationship. See, what happened when Jesus was baptized was Jesus began his ministry. And to recall what happened at his baptism, the clouds sort of parted, dove descends upon him, and the Father speaks. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So what's taking place here is Jesus is saying, woman, I'm not just your son anymore in your mind. It's not the way that you should think about this. There's something more going on with me than just being your son. And right now, there's a shift happening where I am going to do something that is more significant than any other human being could do. And what does it have to do with? Well, notice what he says here. The hour has not yet come. What's he talking about here? What's this idea of his hour really all about? Well, again, this is one of those nuggets that John's going to weave through the rest of his gospel. And so if you carry on um, in the early chapters of John, what you're going to find is Jesus is doing stuff and people are irritated. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. And so as they seek after him, John will say, but they couldn't arrest him. They couldn't kill him because his hour had not yet come. So, so John's, again, throwing this out there. There's something that this is all pointing to. There's a great hour that Jesus has in mind. Even here, in his mind, there's something about a time. What is this time really all about? We'll look forward at John chapter 12. Here's what you read. The hour has come. Okay, so this is not the hour at the wedding, but now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see the, the repetition of words here. John's trying to grab your attention. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see the repetition of words, this glory. In the beginning, this glory dwelt among us, is what John starts with. There's an hour that this miracle, apparently Jesus wants you to grab hold of that's pointing to some other hour. And here he explicitly tells you what the hour is. The hour is all about his death. So in Jesus's mind, there's a purpose, a focus for which he has come. And that focal point and the purpose is to be dragged out of the city, beaten and crucified. This is his ultimate hour. Here at the wedding, This is on his mind. Now just think about that for a second, right? Think about the conversation that he's having with his mother here, right? She goes, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he goes, I'm not going to die yet. I mean, that's pretty much what just happened. That's what he was saying to her. And, And she would probably be like, what are you talking? I'm talking about wine. And he's like, but I'm thinking about dying. Like he's at this wedding and he's thinking about his future death. Why would that be what's on Jesus' mind when he's at a wedding and they run out of wine? 
Why would his future death be what's on his mind? Well, think about a wedding and the nature of weddings and what Jesus considers, who he considers himself to be and who he considers his people to be, right? Jesus, when he's at this wedding, he is thinking about a wedding. Just not this wedding. He's thinking about a future wedding where he is actually going to marry his bride. And of course that's where his mind would be because Jesus, like, guys, just think about this, right? Have you ever been to a wedding as a single person? Yeah? Have, <laughs> okay. Have, when, when you're single at a wedding, what are you thinking about? Your future wedding is probably what you're thinking about, right? Because you're like, this stinks. Look at all these happy people with all their, they're all married, and right? But when you're single at a wedding, your mind goes to this future hope that you might have, where you see what it is that's happening there, and you're enthralled by that, but this thing that you have in mind, Jesus is a first century Palestinian Jew somewhere around the age of 30. Do you have any idea what that would be like to be single as a first century Palestinian Jew around the age of 30? Like that's, not, this is, that's the sort of person where people are constantly saying, when are you going to get married, Jesus? When are you going to get married? You should be having kids. You should already be farther in life, right? And you hate those people, right? <laughs> Jesus here is at this wedding, and undoubtedly he has his mind consumed by something else, and that is because he knows what role he's come to really play, and it will happen ultimately in the cross, where that is this future wedding. And so Jesus is thinking of himself in a particular role, and that is the role of the bridegroom. He's thinking of himself as the bridegroom, and he's thinking of his future bride, which is his people. This is a metaphor that's used for God throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, and then even specifically with Jesus and on into the future. Let me show you just a couple places. In Jeremiah 33, it says, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Notice he's talking about the bride and the bridegroom, and then he begins to speak about the love of God. So it's like, when you think about a bride and a bridegroom, think about God and his love for his people, or even most clearly in Isaiah 62. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So Jesus is at this wedding, and he's consumed about this future wedding, because Jesus is a bridegroom. He's looking forward to the time in which he will actually marry his bride. Or John, he'll actually, after he writes this gospel narrative, be taken, um, be taken into exile, and he will have this vision from God. And in the book of Revelation, here's what you see him speaking of future things. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So John's looking at the future things, and what does he see? He sees a wedding. So in Jesus' mind, I get to the cross, and I get my bride. 
Like that's what's going on in his mind. But think about this for just a, a, little, a little deeper here too. When Jesus uses language, uh, metaphoric language to describe himself, like he'll give himself different kind of titles and help, so trying to help you to see who he is and what he is like. So here what you have is if Jesus is, is the bridegroom, he wants you to think about him as a groom, right? And, and what is a groom thinking about in terms of his bride, right? So, he, so he's relating not just who he is and what he is like, but also this is a picture of who you are in relationship to him, okay? So think for instance about Jesus calling himself the good shepherd. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who keeps watch over his sheep, he's talking about his people now as sheep. So you're supposed to think, what does that tell me about myself in relationship to Jesus who is the good shepherd? And really what he's saying is you're stupid. Like that's what that, that's what that means. <laughs> so, not entirely, but you get the idea. When he says, I am the bridegroom, he's saying something about you too. He's saying that you're the bride. And when Jesus says you're the bride, there should be some things that come to mind, right? If you've been to a wedding, and I've been to a number of weddings, I've actually had the opportunity and the, the blessing to be able to preside over weddings, and there's something about every single wedding, no matter who the couple is, something happens at every single wedding. And I love that I get to have a different perspective than most because of where it is that I'm standing, right? So if there's a, if there's a groom, and, and the bride obviously isn't there because they're going to play the music, but I get this perspective of the closeness to the groom. Like, I can see his hands shaking, like that thing, you know? I, I can see, like, the little tears welling up. Like, you, ha you have that kind of view. You can hear the breath. You can almost feel the heart rate uh, going up, right? And, and I can see that and almost feel it, right? And then... When the music plays and the bride turns that corner and you, you just see in his face something so dramatic happening right then. And why is it? Well, because think about what is happening in, like insofar as what she has done to herself for this moment, right? When a bride gets ready for her wedding day, there is not an ounce of powder on her face in the wrong spot right? There is not a hair that is not held into exactly where it's supposed to be. And she went out of her way months before that to find the perfect dress. And when she shows up in that moment, no matter what is reality, <laughs> this moment, she is pristine. She is perfect, right? Absolutely perfect. And the groom, when he catches a glimpse of her in glory, man, his heart skips a beat because he sees the beauty, right? And what's going on here when Jesus is looking forward to the wedding day is that he's looking forward to the moment when the music plays and when you enter in. And do you know what he's going to do? Even, even more so than a groom who's in love with his bride who's entering and even more so he's going to skip a beat for you like that's what he's after he's looking forward to that day to that moment when we will be united to him and he says that this is what this is what the, the cross is all about like he's looking forward to this hour where he's going to seal the deal for the future wedding day and that's what his death does the shedding of his blood seals that future day and so with that in mind, it takes us to the actual miracle, right? And you look back at the miracle and you see some amazing things. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them up 
to the brim. He said to them, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. There's tons of stuff going on here. I just want to point out a few things. As I said, there's symbolism all over this thing. And so John records certain details that seem even somewhat unnecessary. So take, for instance, these jars. Like, why bother with the details of these jars? And it's actually really, really significant. These jars, as John points out, were jars for the purification of the Jews. And, and so they're stone because if they were clay, there, were, there might be the likelihood of the clay or dirt getting into the water, and then it wouldn't be clean. The water has to be perfectly clean for them to cleanse themselves. And the reason that they would cleanse themselves is because of either the location in which they're entering or the event in which they're entering. And so these are empty, six huge empty jars because they had all cleansed themselves, right? Before they went into the wedding ceremony, which is the event and this place, they cleansed themselves. So it's very likely that they then took the water and they just emptied them, emptied them out, right? What's going on here is Jesus is taking these jars that were meant to help you to be clean before you enter into the space or the event, and he's filling them. But notice, he's not filling them with water and then asking them to all get clean again. He fills them with water and then he turns the water into wine. It's as if Jesus is making a statement about how it is that you relate to God or how you get into the wedding feast. How do you get into the wedding feast? They thought, well, we better wash ourselves. What does Jesus think? You've already been invited in. Here's some wine. Like, that's what's going on here. Jesus is flipping the cleansing ritual on its head, and he's saying, the wedding feast that I want to be a part of with you is a different kind of wedding feast. Like, you don't, you don't have to wash in order to get in. I'm doing something with this wine. And so notice about this wine in particular. What's, what's so special about wine? It's not grape juice either. <laughs> it's wine. And what's so special about this? Well, all through the scriptures you find the significance of wine. And so it's used as a metaphor to speak of, of joy and of blessing. And so let me show you in a number of different places. In Genesis 2, there's these, two, or this, there's these pronounced blessings in Genesis and Deuteronomy. And so in Genesis, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Notice in Deuteronomy, he will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the, the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. Or notice as it's depicted as joy in Ecclesiastes. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let your oil be not lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. So over and over again, wine is used to depict blessing or joy, right? And so Jesus is using this, this substance, on purpose. Notice also, though, it points to future blessing and joy. So in Amos, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So there's a future time of tremendous blessing, but notice most specifically in Isaiah, this is amazing. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. 
of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And notice this. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah here is taking wine and the blessing of wine to speak as though when you enjoy it, you can look forward to the future when God will wipe away every tear and death. Like that's the significance of the metaphor of this wine. And this is the substance that Jesus decides to turn the water into. Because for him, this is what the wedding feast is all about. The wedding feast is all about the day in which he marries his bride, and when he does so, he gets rid of every tear and all of death. This is what Jesus is after. Now just think about this for a second, right? Jesus does all sorts of miracles, right? I mean, he does all kinds of miracles. The first one that he decides to do is this. This is what's on his mind. Now, what is the significance of this? Or what is really, what's compelling for us in regards to this? Like, sure, this is, Jesus goes out of his way to go to this feast, to do this thing, to even speak to his mother with these particular words. Like, he does all of this on purpose to help you see his beauty and his glory. But what is the significance of this really for us today? What's compelling about it today? And I want to say a couple things. The first has to do with your own joy in your own life even like right now, today. Because I don't know about you, but like I mentioned in the intro, like there, there are moments, there are days, there are weeks, there are months where you just feel utterly wineless. Right? Where you're, you're, just, you're down, you're, you're exhausted, relationships, whatever it might be, but you're, you're facing a ton of trouble, just... I don't know, internal, external, doesn't really matter, but you feel wineless. Like this whole thing is just whatever, who cares, just get me out of here. Like, and I'm certain that some of you have gone through that or maybe even going through it right now. And if not, you certainly will go through that in the future. And I don't know how you deal with it, but here's, here's the way that I tend to deal with it. I tend to try to fill the things up with water and cleanse myself to try to get back in. And, and here's what I mean by that. Get back into the good grace of God on your own effort. And that could look like a number of different things, not just religious routines and self-discipline. It can actually look like self-loathing. It can look like a guilt complex. It can look like just beating yourself up like crazy. And, and as, as you do that, the, our lives actually get even worse. We're trying to do this thing to enter in and what Jesus is saying in this whole wedding feast is think differently about this. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is the wedding feast, the promised wedding feast and plenty and plenty and plenty of wine. There's hope in other words. So he's calling us I think to stare at the truth of what he did 2,000 years ago and be reminded that whatever it is that you feel, whatever it is that you're thinking, whatever is stealing your joy, there is joy in him. There absolutely is. Let this be the first, the arche of all miracles, even over you. Find your rest in him. So dwell there. But here's, there's something about this that I think is really important. Because, listen, people tell me to do that. And it actually gets kind of irritating sometimes. Because in the moment, you can't or you just don't want to. And that's part of the problem, right? So it's cyclical. 
So you don't want to actually get out of the self-loathing and the guilt. And so it spirals, and then somebody tells you, well, stop it. And you're like, but I can't, or I don't want to. That's actually why I'm here. And it gets kind of irritating, right, when somebody just says, well, just stare at Jesus. Okay, how? Notice what happens here in this miracle. <laughs> Jesus uses the people around him. Did you notice this? Like, he tells them, go get the water, put it in the jugs. And then he tells them, to pull out the wine and to take it to the master. Did you notice that before this, as we saw last week, Jesus enters onto the scene and who pronounces his entrance? John the Baptist. When people start following Jesus, who was there to point out Jesus? John the Baptist. When they start following and they start finding other people to follow after Jesus, come and see who does that. His disciples do it. They go find each other. Andrew finds Peter. Philip finds Nathaniel. Their people are being used by God to, to bring Jesus into their lives. And that's what's happening here with the wine. The wine is being brought about by other people. And so here's the thing. You can find yourself in those places where you feel utterly wineless. And I would argue that, that one of the primary means by which God is going to bring wine back into your life is through the body of Christ. And I mean that in a number of ways. In your engagement with the body of Christ, which is your own just interactions and service towards other people, getting your mind off yourself and giving of your time and of your energy to others to help bring wine to them, right? That's a huge piece of it. But also just the relationship itself, the willingness to engage and be transparent. Like, here's where I am with my guilt complex. Here's where I am with my self-loathing. Here's where I, I feel utterly wineless. And then asking other people to help bring you the wine. And that's what God does. God uses other people to bring the wine. And I'm not saying this just because of this, like I'm not trying to just take this miracle down this weird road of, of how it is that you should be involved in community or something. This is precisely what I've experienced. And many of you have too where you've been in that place, you're down in the dumps, and you can't seem to get yourself out. And then you've got that friend who goes out of their way to reach out to you, to encourage you, to pray with you, and that's what helps. You could be that friend today for that person, or maybe you need to just be honest with that friend and ask them to help you. There's a reason why Paul, over and over in the New Testament, will call us to encourage one another. It's because you lack courage and you need somebody else to help you with it. Like, that's the point. And there are people around you who lack the courage, and you're there to actually help them with it. So we've got this wine. We've got this wine. If you feel as though you don't, let me remind you, you do. And if you have people in your life that feel like they don't, spread the love of the wine. Give it away. Right? And watch. See what God does in terms of bringing joy back into your life and into the community. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful that we're grateful for this very simple show of your love and of your grace and of your care and your concern for us. And how it is that you truly do want us to have joy. And I, I ask, Father, right now that if there's anybody in that place of just joylessness, of, of just a, a lack of, of care, if there's anybody just experiencing tremendous amounts of guilt or shame or fear or anxiety, and they feel just absolutely wineless. God, I pray that the truths that were spoken this morning 
about your son, about the cross, about the marriage, the true future hope that we have that would so resonate in their hearts that it would get rid, it would just utterly get rid of the fear, the anxiety, the shame, the guilt. And Father, I pray if, if we're in here and we're going through one of those seasons of just great joy, experiencing your presence and your beauty and your goodness, God, help us to not hoard that. Help us to give that away. Father, answer our prayers by your spirit. In Christ's name.